We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Welcome this morning. We're going to continue with uh, what I was sharing with you last Sunday morning during Sunday school uh, and adult Bible study here. Before I do that, though, I'd like to just uh, mention something, an article that I uh, ran into this week that might be help, helpful to us. All right, I uh, <clears throat> ran into an article uh, this week that I thought had some helpful things in it. And uh, so this is... Um, fellow named Christopher Rufo. I don't know if you know him or have heard of him before. I don't know anything really about his background, but he's engaged in an ongoing dialogue with a physician who works in a major children's hospital in a blue city uh, who has witnessed firsthand the transgender ideology in the medical profession and uh, how it's jeopardized the first commandment of the healing sciences. What's that first commandment as they call it? Do no harm. Do no harm. That's a pretty good first rule of thumb, wouldn't you say? Do no harm. So um, this fellow is uh, being interviewed anonymously. I'm sure you can imagine why. <laughs> um, so Rufo asked him to set the scene. What's it like in a major children's hospital in the U.S. regarding transgender interventions? And he said this, I think the best way to answer that question is to talk about the cultural shift that happened in 2020 because transgender ideology and COVID, this was an interesting little piece for me of thought, are inextricably linked. Normally, doctors operate by the authority of the professional societies that govern our specific practice. That worked, he means previously it worked, because these individuals, the individuals in those institutions were reliable, intelligent, and thoughtful. But with COVID in 2020, we started getting medical decrees, not degrees, but decrees, without peer review or evidence. You saw this with masks, social distancing, emergency use authorizations. These decrees were expressed as something that everyone had to do without justification based on sound science. The other thing was censorship. If you were to ask questions or express doubt about these medical decrees, you would be ostracized within your department and you stood a good chance of being publicly humiliated, severely reprimanded, or, guess what, fired. Okay, so the, think of that, that connection. That's when transgender ideology really took off. Within these academic institutions, so-called experts in the field of transgender medicine would simply declare that treatments like puberty blockers and other interventions were the gold standard of medical care. The evidence to support this is completely fraudulent, but no dissent was permitted. You see the connection now? The authoritarian mindset that took over during COVID has come to pass into other areas, and this is the leftist kind of mentality. Do what I say, don't ask questions, or I will censor you, or worse. 
Okay, censoring is just the first step in marginalizing, uh, making somebody unable to participate in the society and commerce and business and then taking away their freedom and then killing them, okay, if they don't agree with you. That's the end of the communist kind of system, the leftist progressivist system. So I'm saying this just to kind of educate us and kind of make some connections in our minds. Um, so uh, if everyone within the medical community knew that if he questioned transgender ideology, what would happen? Well, same thing if you ha- as, as if you question a COVID thing. He would suffer the same type of repercussions, uh, lose, you know, severely reprimanded, humiliated, fired, censored, you know, all that. So the best way to describe the environment would be as an authoritarian, censorious culture that discourages any meaningful debate and encourages the demonization of anyone who asks questions. So I uh, immediately think of historical cases like, um, could the earth be round? Just asking the question. You know, I don't want to be um, burned at the stake for asking the question, please. You see what I'm saying? The same kind of mentality. There's something about humans that doesn't like to be questioned uh, when you're not in control of the, or when you're in control of the situation, questioning kind of erodes that control. So funny too how those who were in the uh, vanguard of questioning authority back in the 60s and 70s in the universities are now running things and they don't want to be questioned as the authorities. I find that uh, quite ironic. Um, so Rufo asks, what are the main tenets of transgender medical theory that are enforced as the conventional wisdom and how have those ch- tenets changed medical practice? So he says, one, when an individual believes he is of a certain, he or she is of a certain sex, he or she truly is of that sex. Two, the ideal response is to affirm the individual's preferred identity. Three, now that's even if that per- person is messed up in their thinking which they are messed up in their thinking, but uh, three, the repercussion of non-intervention is a higher likelihood of that individual taking their own life, okay? So if you don't do, you guys have to listen to the first part of it if you haven't heard, because there's a couple things that lead up to this. Um, So the, the repercussions are so high, you have to do anything to save them from that uh, bad outcome, Okay. The threat of suicide removes any guardrails for what we must do to affirm that individual's identity, whether it's chemicals at 11 years old, hormones at 13, uh, removal of body parts before 18 years of age. But in reality, here's another interesting feature. When you affirm these individuals' gender identity, what you are doing is affirming their hatred for themselves. That's a very key point, I think. What they're saying, what a person's saying when they have this trouble is, I don't like myself. I hate myself. And you come along and say, I hate yourself too. Let's change that. Now, is that really love? Is that really compassion and concern for a person? No, that's piling on to their problem. So you affirm their hatred for themselves. You have these children who are going through confusing times, difficult times, when you affirm, by the way, that's about most children 
in middle school, isn't it? <laughs> Something like that. Not to this extent, but when, yeah, the schools aren't helping, of course. When you affirm this belief system, you, what you're really doing is telling them you hate yourself at this moment, and I affirm that hatred. We have to ask ourselves, why do these people have such high rates of suicide? Because we're affirming that they should hate themselves. Makes sense. Um, and so Rufo says, well, these are medical doctors. They presumably understand basic human biology. But this is the thing in the first do-no-harm thing. And yet they've bought into this whole thing, not just abstractly but concretely. This is how, if you ask yourself, how is it that so many Germans could, con- could feel okay with following along with Hitler's plan to exterminate the Jews? They laid a mindset down for some years that the Jews are secondary kinds of uh, beings. We're you know, superior to them, and uh, they're uh, politically bad. They are, you know, steal our, our, our livelihood or whatever. They make all kinds of thoughts come into people's minds. They justify what is obviously terrible, terrible behavior. You can make people believe almost anything with the right kind of pressure Put onto them. Experiments have shown that, psychological experiments. Um, so, so how does their background knowledge crumble in the face of these ideas? And the physician says, I believe it's because they bought into the false ideology of transgenderism. And when people have a false ideology, they need a way to separate themselves from non-believers, okay, non-believers in transgenderism, to express their faith to their other believers. And if these rituals are not derived from a cultural heritage within a moral tradition, they become susceptible to unbound human depravity. When you look at the Judeo-Christian tradition, you have the outlawing of child sacrifice and other ways that standards were codified. But in the transgender ideology, none of these guardrails exist. They just blew out the sides of the road so you can go to either ditch. What becomes the greatest expression then of faith to other believers, that is faith in transgenderism, to sacrifice the most pure and innocent. That demonstrates that you're fully given over to the ideology. Do you see that? How did they do it in in ancient Canaan? How did the Amorites and Canaanites do it? They did it by sacrificing their children to Molech in uh, in in the fire passing them through the fire. They would give their children. That's how they showed their devotion to their God. Once they do that, they become heroes and martyrs. They have hung their flag up at the White House, and there's no going back. Because if they were to demonstrate any humility, they would have to come to terms with the fact that they advocated for and participated in a practice that destroyed the lives of innocent children. And I think what um, this kind of gels or congeals together with our theology of the end times because you're going to have people who are extraordinarily um, perverted in their thinking, able to do horrific things to other human beings. And I think in part because they have been chemically modified and, and their, their regular development as a human has been stunted. I mean, if you stop somebody from having puberty, they're going to have a childish kind of existence in mind for the rest of their lives in a way, aren't they? They're not going to physically develop properly. They're going to have, their depravity is going to be un, un, unleashed. You know, it'll be un, kind of inhibited. That's my understanding when you see 
the passage about the Antichrist in Daniel, where he doesn't regard the love of women as a very unnatural kind of approach to life. What do you think? Perhaps this has a connection to that. Um, so he, I think this is the closing, almost. He, he gives a little illustration uh, to compare what's going on. There was a kid, he said, in the children's hospital in his teenage years who had really bad Crohn's disease. I think we know something about that, don't we? Really bad, to the point where he'd already had multiple surgeries, and that kid would always be coming back to the hospital in the operating room. That's a sad story, isn't it? Over and over again, probably have to have more resections or whatever he has to have of his colon. But one day, at the same time they were rolling that kid back into the operating room, another kid was headed to the other operating room to get an implant put in his arm to suppress his hormones. The first kid had no choice. He had no control over his condition of Crohn's. He was born that way. There was no way to prevent it from happening. But the second kid was put into that situation because of the psychiatrists, psychologists, doctors, politicians, and those in the media who convinced him that this was the correct thing to do to cure his mental anguish. Um, I'm going to just turn over to Leviticus and uh, pick up a principle from the Law of Moses, which is helpful here. And this should uh, be instructive to all of us here today. Leviticus 19, verse 28 there are several places in the scripture where this kind of thing is uh, said. But it says in Leviticus 19, 27 and 8, You shall not shave around the sides of your head, nor shall you disfigure the edges of your beard. These were uh, evidently pagan practices that they would do for mourning rituals or other things. Verse 28, You shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor tattoo any marks on you. I am the Lord. Okay, so this is a principle that I've used with people fairly directly if they ask, should I get a tattoo? And my answer is absolutely not. You should not get a tattoo because of this text of Scripture. Well, why? We're not under the, you know, I'm a good dispensationalist pastor. We're not under the law of Moses. Well, that's true, we're not. But this principle is a principle that's an ongoing principle. And what is it? God doesn't want you to modify, to mutilate, to change your body in this kind of way. Now, you may ask, well, what, what ways are permissible then? You know, what surgeries can I have? And we can talk about that in kind of case-by-case -case basis. Obviously, something medically necessary is clearly permissible. We're not talking about that. That's not a mutilation. That's a fix. That's an improvement. That's a, that's a repair. That may be correcting a birth defect or something that's happened to you because of the curse of sin in the world. But to, to modify your body, to make cuttings in your flesh or tattoo any marks on you, you're not, you don't do that because God is the Lord. Now, why is that? He's the one who made you. He's the Lord. Not, you're, you're not the Lord. He's the Lord. He's the boss. You're not the boss. He made the choice. You didn't make that choice as to what you were. Now, making an argument from lesser, a tattoo. People say, what's the big deal? To um, electively removing body parts that identify you as who you are. 
Okay, we're not talking about appendices or, I don't know, what else? Skin tags or something like that. Okay, we're talking about, you know, parts of your immutable person. Uh, the scripture is very clear that we don't do that. Okay, I think that principle continues. The lordship of God certainly does continue, doesn't it? It doesn't stop when Moses' law uh, was fulfilled. Uh, no, it just continued to, you know, uh, right on, just as strong as ever. Um, so this, he says, this this example of the two, you know, teenagers going into surgery, one, you know, for a ridiculous reason, the other for necessary. This should weigh heavily on the consciences of doctors who did this to a child. Uh, with an opportunity to live a normal life, to have a normal childhood. At some point, the child's going to wake up and he's going to realize that this was unnecessary, that his organs were permanently mutilated, the balance of his hormones is completely destroyed. We have no idea what that does to a person's mind. You know that? No clue, no long-term, not one long-term study and, and, uh, that's valid. In fact, there were some studies started back in the 60s, if you uh, uh, look at it, with a, a pair of twins. I don't know if you've read about that study. And uh, it was totally fraudulent, totally fraudulent study where one was brought up as a, I think they were boys, one was brought up as a girl, the other just brought up as a boy. And uh, there was a physical abuse happening from the doctor to the children and stuff like that. Uh, terrible. I mean, there's zero evidence. Don't be, don't be floored by people who say that the establishment says the gold standard of care is. That's just a statement. That's not what actually has been determined. And there are places in the world leftward of us, like in the UK, where they're pulling back from this ideology because they're seeing the damage that it's doing. So we've fallen into what's called a... Um, a mass psychosis. A, uh, there's been a mass formational kind of uh, psychology that's been worked on us to uh, us, I mean, in this broader society to make people think that this is okay. Um, he's going to realize that there's no going back and that the people who were supposed to protect him threw him to the wolves. Why did they do that? Because he became a sacrifice for their lusts. They want to be the ones in power. They want to show that they're the heroes, the martyrs. They've done something to further society along. And it's really demonic in the end. It's really ultimately demonic. Um, Rufo asks, what do you predict for the future of this medicine? Will it continue to gain ground or will it fall apart? He says, I don't know. I pray there's a change. One of the things I've been thinking about is what puberty blockers do to children. Uh, and it is called, and I forget the name, it's a long medical name, um, but a releasing hormone agonist, and it comes to the uh, form, comes in the form of monthly injections or an implant. And because it stimulates the activity of this hormone, it shuts down the activity of the hypothalamus. Anybody know what the hypothalamus is? It's an almond-sized structure in your brain. He says, one of the most vestigial structures that we have, and I don't know what he means by vestigial, because then he goes on to say it controls all the other hormonal structures in your body. So it's not a vestige, like you would say the appendix is a vestige of, of, uh, of, of evolution. Um, 
but maybe it seems like it's just kind of off there not doing much, but actually it is. It's uh, controlling the other hormonal structures, sexual development, emotions, fight or flight response, everything. But it shouldn't be described in such cold physiological terms because your hypothalamus is not just a hormone factory. See, people who are naturalists, what is a naturalist? Somebody who denies Jackson? Denies the existence of God or denies the existence of the supernatural in general. Okay? And so a naturalist looks at us like we're you know, skin and bones, a, a, a sack of molecules and chemicals interacting with one another. And so we're just cold physiological beings. You know, we're just kind of uh, automatons at the mercy of chemicals running through our veins and our, you know, lymph system and whatever all that is. And uh, we're not just a, a hormone factory. It's a system. Listen to this. That a lot. This is a, a physician. I don't have. No, I don't know if he's a, a Christian or not. He certainly tip, tips his hat to Judeo-Christian values. It's it's this system that allows you to stand in awe of the beauty of a sunset, or to hear the sounds of orchestral music, and to stop what you're doing and want to listen. And I always think that if someone were to ask me, where is that? You look, I'm sorry, where, where is it that you would look for the divine spark in each individual? I would say that it would be somewhere beneath the inner chamber. Beneath the inner chamber, which is what the word hypothalamus means. It's like the innermost part of generating who we are. To shut down that system, he says, is to shut down what makes us human. Are you with me? This is uh, important stuff for us to be aware of, I think. So that's why I wanted to share it with us this morning and uh, remind us of this principle about our bodies. Um, Yeah, we can misuse our bodies. We can uh, be bad stewards of them. um, And we should be better stewards of them. But we shouldn't be doing things like making cuttings, Markings, permanent modifications, um, those sorts of things, because that is an affront to the lordship of God. Okay? And, and this whole movement is an affront to the lordship of God, which we don't want to have anything to do with. So, um, you know, yes. Leviticus 19.28. Leviticus 19.28. Um, yeah, that was the one that I looked up on marks on your flesh. You know, today, uh, tattoos are, are just considered normal. Uh, I don't know, everybody's doing it kind of thing, but it's not normal. Um, these are practices done by unbelieving people, not by us. So, um, let's, uh, shift the transmission here and move into something else. Uh, Last week, uh, I was talking about spiritual disciplines for the Christian life, profit that I gained from reading Whitney's book on that. I was going through an outline of it with you. We discussed uh, Bible intake, uh, hearing, reading, studying, memorizing, and meditating, uh, applying God's Word. Uh, Also, we also talked about prayer and uh, the discipline of prayer, 
by the way, I was reading his uh, other book on family worship, and he makes this very simple um, statement. Basically, family worship is reading, praying, and singing. Okay, you don't have to do a lot of, you know, hours and hours of preparation to make a sermon for your family worship time. Just read, pray, sing. Okay, so we. I admit haven't done this uh, seven days a week in our home. I do, I do, uh, I do take off uh, Wednesdays and Sundays because my family hears enough of me on those days. <laughs> Don't laugh. <laughs> uh, but other days I, I should, I know I should, and, and I feel like we should uh, you know, say some things about spiritual matters at the table or whatever. We certainly try to pray before we uh, fall off to sleep at night and uh, before our meals and things, but um, read, pray, and sing. Those are disciplines. It's easy to run out of time or not be together and not do those. Another one of the disciplines that he gives is worship. And uh, he, he says we, well, I mean, I think one of the things is we come together on a regular basis to discipline ourselves for worship. In other words, if, if you just sit at home every Sunday and don't come to be with God's people, are you, are you really worshiping God? Tell me honestly. You know, I've run into so many people. My church is at home. My church is out in nature. Oh, yeah, who's your pastor out there? Who, who are the deacons of that church? You know, do you have a song leader helping you sing to worship God? Is somebody, you know, playing an accompanying instrument? Not that you have to have an accompanying instrument to although there are many passages in Scripture that talk about instrumentation, aren't there? Um, you know, those are just foolish kinds of statements, but worship. Uh, he also enjoins us here, do not ignore the main person we are here to worship. <laughs> Jesus, God the Father, you know, they're not just like in the corner, you know, that we forget about them. They're the central focus. Worship is to focus on and respond to God to focus on and respond to God. Uh, if you disobey God, you're not worshiping him. I don't care what you say. I went, I went and sang, but I'm not going to listen to what the pastor said from the Bible because that's my life. I choose what I do. No, that's not worship. That's anti-worship. Worship is done in spirit and truth. Okay, I'm going to ask you now, where do you find that in the Bible? Worship is, should be in spirit and truth. Where is it? You said John? Okay, where in John? And you remember? Okay, you got a quotation of it. What's the address? Anybody know? It's in the passage with the woman at the well. We obviously need to do some uh, remedial education here. John chapter 4, verse 23 and 24, okay? The woman at the well, Jesus speaking to her, talking about worship. You know, you say you must worship on this mountain, and the Jews say, well, there's coming a time when it doesn't matter where you're going to worship, but those, God's seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. That's it. You just drew a blank. The audience member says, for those on the on the computer. They just do a blank because I caught them off guard. That's right. 
Yeah, that's what your uh, that's what your friends are going to do to you also when you need to witness to them. They're going to catch you off guard, and you need to be ready. Um, but uh, worship is expected uh, of God's people, both publicly and privately. It's a discipline that is to be cultivated, he says. And um, this is just, I mean, you've got to read the whole chapter to get the full benefit of it. I'm just giving you an outline. But he asked by way of application, will you commit yourself to daily worship? Let me back up for a second. The reason that he says this about daily worship, you might say, well, why do I have to do that daily? What what is it? Well, it's not a question of do I have to. It's a question of, I mean, do you want to? Do you want to worship God? Uh, is it one of the millipedes? Okay, get rid of it. Uh, we've got a bug in the church service. I'm going to have to go back and do some debugging. I do that in computer programming, by the way. Hi, hi. But um, So why, why daily worship? Well, think of the people of Israel. Go back in your mind. How many times did they gather for worship in ancient Israel every year? I'm going to ask our brother the question. He's got his three fingers up because he knows how to count to three. All your males must appear before the Lord in Jerusalem. Well, later on at Jerusalem, but at the tabernacle, wherever that was, three times a year. You're like, wow, we only had to go to church three times a year. Super. I have all kinds of time that I can save doing other things. Uh, That's not good. Um, So if if they... were people of God, do you think they just worship God three times a year? Absolutely not. Yeah, right. Evening, morning, and noon, I will pray and cry aloud, demonstrate a contrite heart, give my requests to God, praise God, David says in in the Psalms, uh, showing the attitude of a man who lived before the temple was even built, David, the king, about desiring to worship God. Oh, and I put... Did I put this in the bulletin or my sermon notes this morning? I don't know. It all gets jumbled up. How I want to be in the courts of the Lord's house. That mentality. I mean, when David was expelled because of the rebellion of Absalom, his longing heart, oh, I want to appear before God. Jonah, he's in the belly of a whale. You'd think the last thing I'm thinking about is going to the Lord's house. He he wants to go back and, and be before the Lord and worship him. Uh, far better than being in the whale or this fish, the great fish. So they most certainly worshiped more often than they gathered. And gathering began in earnest after the Babylonian exile, and they began to have synagogue services. The synagogue is the gathering of the people on a weekly basis. The Jewish people knew they needed that weekly uh, to remind them to worship God. And uh, so more often... Better, uh, more often is better. People of God worship God. When we wake in the morning, we worship through prayer. I, pr- I pray, I trust, and reading the word and that sort of thing. So that's a discipline. So will you commit yourself to worship? Will you put actual worship into your acts of worship? Do not have a lukewarm indifference to God. Um, so... That sentence that I wrote there is from the book, Will You Put Actual Worship Into Your Acts of Worship? What does that mean? That means you can stand and sing the words, but are you singing the words? Do you mean the words? Are you testifying to God 
uh, with the meaning of those words. So that is uh, worship. Uh, In the sixth chapter, he talks about the spiritual discipline of evangelism. And he defines it this way. We present Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit to sinful people so that they come to faith in him, to receive him as their Savior and King. Or he says more simply, maybe we just call evangelism communicating the gospel. I think it's helpful to say more than communicating the gospel because we want to make sure that we're communicating the right gospel, the full thing. And we talked about this some months back, what the gospel is uh, and how it's truncated today sometimes and, and parts of it are eliminated. So it's presenting Christ and the power of the Spirit to sinful people so that they may come to trust in him to receive him as Savior and King and, and serve him ultimately. Evangelism is expected of God's people, okay? That is, using your mouth to explain Jesus to people is expected of us. Just let me lay that out there on the table. If you're not doing that, then you're not doing the expectation. Redeemed people say so. They explain that. Evangelism is empowered by the Spirit of God. Uh, Jesus told the disciples, wait in Jerusalem until you receive the Spirit receiving power from on high to preach the gospel. But it's also a discipline because it's easy to leave it off, isn't it? It's the most uncomfortable thing we can talk about with people, uh, or almost the most uncomfortable thing, um, and we don't want to do that. So we have to push ourselves to do it. That's why it's a discipline. So if you fancy yourself to be a disciplined person, You're going to be disciplined in the areas of Bible intake, of prayer, of worship, of evangelism, and you're also going to be disciplined, I'll close with this one, in the area of serving. And uh, I I like sometimes uh, these illustrations that he used in the beginning part of the chapter. He talks about the Pony Express. Have you read about that ever? You know what it is, right? They would advertise for fellows who could ride a horse, who were young and wiry, who were not more than, I think, 18 years old, uh, and who were not married, <laughs> didn't have children. And, you know, it was, it, they had no shortage of people to, to do that work. It, was, it, it sounded glorious, like you're a hero, you know, riding across the the old west getting stuff to the west coast uh, on the Pony Express. It didn't last too long because the telegraph came in and saved those poor riders and horses from having to do that. But for a time, there was the Pony Express, and uh, it was difficult work. It was serving work, and it, it, it sounded good in a way, but the long hours, you know, on, a, on horses at the different stations where, you, I mean, you'd just be riding and riding and riding all day. I mean, that's why you had to be young and wiry. You know, you couldn't be overweight at all because you had to float on that horse. Otherwise, I mean, you were going to be in pain anyway. But uh, every Christian is expected to serve, motivated by obedience, motivated by gratitude, motivated by gladness, forgiveness, humility, love, not motivated by guilt, and not motivated by legalism either. There's no sense in which when we say you must serve God that 
that is demanding us to have a legalistic attitude. Okay? That has been a very poor part of modern theology where people jump to legalism. They just oh, jump to legalism and say, well, you can't say that because that's legalistic. Well, there's a species of legalism that's bad. There's a species of, 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 of saying service is expected of every Christian. That's not legalism at all. Um, worship, he says, empowers serving. Serving expresses worship. And godliness requires a disciplined balance between worship and serving. Is there a Bible illustration you can think about a balance between worship and serving when the balance was overweighted on the serving side and Jesus said there's a better part? Now you've got it. (laughs) Mary and Martha. Serving was necessary, worship necessary, but you you can't just say forget the worship because I'm too busy. I've got stuff I've got to do, you know. No, you don't have stuff that's more important than worshiping God. I'll tell you that right now. It can wait, or it can never be done, and it will be fine. Worship has to be done. Worship and serving and have that, have that balance. So the application of this chapter is you are expected and gifted to serve, and then the question is, are you willing to do so? So that's serving God. And what does that look like? Well, there's all kinds of ways in which service looks. But uh, I'll leave that to you to ponder as you think about the spiritual disciplines. There's still several more. I think he has, what does he have, uh, 13, 12 of them. So, or, well, really 11 or 2 with Bible intake, but we still have several more to go. So um, happy to take questions afterwards on what we've talked about today, but I'm going to close in prayer just now. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege uh, to be here to talk about these two uh, disparate subjects. I pray that you would help us as we consider our spiritual discipline in prayer, worship, evangelism, uh, the other areas in serving that we looked at last week as well. May we be uh, sober-minded, serious, and take very, very seriously our responsibilities as Christian people, lest uh, we look nothing different than the world, and the world cannot tell that we're different, and we leave no testimony behind. Uh, We pray that you'd help us to be good testifiers. I pray that uh, any questions that arise we'd be able to address and uh, and help one another to understand and think in a deeper way about these matters. In Jesus' name, amen.